when we look at all of these financial markets and whether it's the unprecedented nature of the German curve, the ridiculous level of inversion in Euro dollar futures or US treasuries, what all these markets are telling us is in summation to expect more QEs. Interest rates are going down likely very quickly and eventually they're gonna hit the zero lower bound or the effective lower bound as it's called today, which means central banks are going to go back and do what it is they always do, what they're familiar with, what they're comfortable with and what never ever works. And when we do get more QEs, inevitably people are gonna say a couple of things. One, they're gonna say that this is going to contribute even more to the inflationary problem that QE began that all of this consumer price mess started with too much money printing in the first place. And the other thing that they're gonna say about it is that it's pouring trillions of dollars or yen or euros into the real economy because they've been saying that very thing from the very, few, very first QE going all the way back to March of 2001. So more than 20 years of quantitative easing and yet people still call it quantitative and still call it easing. QE is instead a reactionary force, a reactionary program, a reactionary instinct by central bankers confronted with challenges they don't know, other, don't know any other way to, to deal with. They don't know how to fix the deflationary monetary problem that Japan has been struggling with for 40 years or 30 years, while the rest of the world has been struggling with for 15. They just simply do QE because in lieu of being able to enter the monetary system or even understand what's going on, they do QE. What is QE? Why do we still believe in all this stuff? And why is Japan the perfect example to debunk all those myths? Not just Japan, but Japan in 2022. Now, the Japanese just got their consumer price numbers last week for the month of October. And wouldn't you know it, they're the highest they've been in 40 years, just like around the rest of the world. But that doesn't validate QE or QQE as it's called in Japan, actually the opposite. It shows how it was never QE, no matter what the Bank of Japan did, that was only ever a reaction to what's going on in the real economy and that there are other forces here that are actually having more of a direct impact on not just the Japanese economy, but the entire global economy. So we're going to get more QEs and we should be prepared when they show up for what they actually represent, which is the opposite of what you're told, again, because they're a reaction to conditions. So when we see QE, it's not money printing, it's because of the other thing, the opposite. And Japan, again, is a perfect example, and that's right where we're gonna to start today. We're gonna to take another hard look at QE, getting ourselves ready for the next round of them. Now, before we do that, of course, I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Lots of information, including at our, our, our website, eurodollar.university, uh, exclusive member videos where we have gone over these QE evaluations in detail. And we're going to draw a little bit from those videos today. If you want information about the Eurodollar University members, check us out the website, eurodollar.university. Also research subscriptions. There's a pre-Black Friday sale going on at Markets Insider Pro. Details at our website, or you can just go to marketsinsiderpro.com, including a special offer for the Eurodollar University deep dive analysis. Again, all the details, eurodollar.university.
So let's take a look at Japan. Japan and QE, because Japan was the first QE ever going back to March of 2001. And when that happened, Bank of Japan, it wasn't, it wasn't a unanimous decision. There was one dissenter, a lady by the name of Aiko Shinotsuka, who said, why are we doing quantitative easing when we don't do quantity money anymore? We haven't done quantity money in decades because we can't. Echoing the uh, problems that Paul Volcker talked about two decades beforehand in the late 70s, early 80s in the United States, central bankers at Japan in Japan at the end of their lost decade, well, the end of their first lost decade in the 1990s said, we don't know what else to do. We've tried everything. We've tried lowering interest rates down to zero. Now that we're at the zero lower bound, the economy's doing poorly. The economy's in deflation. We can't seem to get out of it. How are we going to react to that deflationary, depressionary economy? Well, they decided, let's do some bond buying and call it quantitative easing because the very act of calling it quantitative easing might have more of an impact than actually buying bonds, as was the case from the very, 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 very beginning. But even so, uh, here's a quote from CNN from March of 2001. The BOJ's move injects a large amount of money into the Japanese economy known as quantitative easing. And that's what everybody continues to say today. Any news story that's printed about quantitative easing that's published on the internet by anybody, it says largely the same thing. And you're already you're questioning, how can it be quantitative easing? How can it be quantitative if, for example, the Japanese are on their 26th iteration? If it's quantitative, what that means is these central bankers and economists have done all of their complex calculations and Monte Carlo simulations and come up with the right exact amount to get the economy where they want it to be, right? It's quantitatively determined to be the right number. And if that's the truth, if that's the case, then how can the Bank of Japan, as of today, be on, by my unofficial count, the 26th QE? More generally, you could say they're on QE11 that began in March of 2020. So what Aiko Shinotsuka said back in March of 2001, her objection has absolutely held, held true because what she said was, we don't do quantitative money here. There is no relationship between our view of quantities of money and the results in the real economy because we don't understand the monetary system. So trying to do something like quantitative easing already betrays the lack of knowledge that we, we have. But again, the Bank of Japan had no other choice. And really, that's the issue here. In, in lieu of being able to determine what else to do, they don't know what other options they have. When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When all you have is the ability to purchase assets from commercial banks, everything looks like bank reserves. And that's really all quantitative easing is. Now, there's tons of myths, tons of legends that have grown up about it, uh, all of these news stories that have propagated the theories that quanti how quantitative easing might work that don't stand up to scrutiny. They don't stand up to any amount of facts and evidence. They just continually repeat the theories without ever examining the evidence, which, as I said in those member videos, the exclusive member videos at Eurodollar University, where we go through the evidence, you can see why they stick to the theories rather than the actual truth. Because... When you examine the evidence, what you find is not 
trillions of yen or trillions of dollars or trillions of whatever being poured into any real economy, it's far more simple, it's far more troubling than all that. It's nothing more than an asset swap. But how is QE talked about? I mean, let's go through an example here, a recent example here from the mainstream media, Forbes.com, Forbes, which is a well-known financial publication, recently writing up how QE is supposed to work in the, in the U.S. economy or any economy. It starts out with the usual, usual myth, which is the Fed buys assets by printing money. It prints a bunch of money using its printing press, uses that money to buy assets. Voila, the magic begins to happen. Well, that's not necessarily true. In fact, it's not actually true. The Fed doesn't print money. It creates an accounting fiction called bank reserves, which is not the same thing. And it's a subtle difference, but it's an enormous difference. Bank reserves are an interbank token, not useful money, which is why you or I have never been able to get our hands on any. If you're not a commercial bank connected to the, to, to the commercial banking system in whichever one of these jurisdictions, you're not going to use bank, you're not going to use bank reserves because you can't. It's an interbank token and nothing else. And as an interbank token, already the card is behind the horse or the other way around, the horse is behind the cart, which means that unless the bank commercial banking system is willing to do not something with those bank reserves, which is how Forbes describes it, but rather to do something after being given bank reserves, which are nothing more again than an asset swap, then the commercial banking system is where it all goes to end because the, these central banks create bank reserves Give them to commercial banks in in swapping a commercial a uh, a credit asset that the commercial bank used to have. Now the commercial bank has nothing more than another reserve asset. That's it. It's not money. If they want to go out and do something, and it, because the central bank swapped this asset, that's an entirely different story, and it's one that never gets told. Instead, what we hear is this Forbes stuff, the theory behind QE. The next part, they say. New money, new money enters the economy, just like what CNN wrote in March of 20, 2001, pouring trillions of dollars into the real economy. That's not true. It's at the very least, as I said, one step removed. The central bank swaps these bank reserves for an earning assets from the commercial bank. And then what happens? Well, if the commercial bank doesn't want to do anything else, end of story. That's it. And that's the history of QE. If commercial banks and commercial banks have refused to do anything regardless of QE, there's no effect from QE. This is where the QE story ends. But no, they keep going. They keep keep going with these theoretical possibilities when in practice they've been shown never to have. Here's the next one. Liquidity increases in the financial system. This is just ridiculous. But it sounds plausible. It sounds like it should be true, right? Because now financial commercial banking, commercial banking system has more bank reserves. And if you believe bank reserves are money, it sounds like there's more liquidity in the financial system. When in fact, we don't see any type of financial indications, curves, all the stuff that we talk about in Eurodollar University are absolutely unequivocal that this never happens. In fact, what happens, the best charitable interpretation is that QE as a reaction to a deflationary impulse comes in at the end of it and they take there's correlation between QE printing bank reserves 
and in generalized improvement or lack of continued contraction in the monetary system. It's like the old job saved rhetoric that, oh, maybe it would have been worse if there wasn't QE. Well, we don't know because we can't prove the counterfactual, but we can say that the markets don't view QE and bank reserves as additions of liquidity at all. And we could spend a lot of time on this point. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to continue, can you continue on here? But really, the, one of the major thrusts of Eurodollar University is to show you what the monetary system actually views on QE in the rest of everything. And what the, what the markets tell you is that QE is not liquidity in the financial system. But maybe it lowers interest rates. That's the next thing. And it stands to, I mean, it sounds, again, it sounds plausible. If the central bank is purchasing an asset, therefore raising its price more than what it would have been, and in this case, if that asset is a financial asset, like a fixed income instrument, then that means lowering interest rates. So the, at the very least, regardless of liquidity, regardless of money into the real economy, maybe it lowers interest rates, which then theoretically makes it cheaper to borrow. And doesn't that help the economy? Well, time and time and time and time again, there's no correlation between asset purchasing and behavior and interest rates. In fact, you see this in study after study after study, published not by outside researchers looking to discredit QE, but instead by inside researchers looking to find the most, most, uh, the, the best, most charitable evidence they can to make it sound like QE actually works. And time and time again, they find almost nothing in the terms of this interest rate channel. QE has almost no impact on interest rates. I would say it has no impact whatsoever, but these studies find this pitifully small amounts of maybe a couple basis points, a couple dozen basis points in lower yields for huge, massive bond purchasing. So the evidence is lacking here too. And then there's one final thing. Uh, use, again, using our Forbes list here, Investors change their asset allocation, which is portfolio effects, which is the one that there's absolutely no evidence for whatsoever in any place that QE's ever actually done, ever, ever actually undertaken, which essentially this is supposed to be is as central banks uh, buy assets from the commercial banking system, give them lower earning or, or in the case of negative interest rates, negative earning bank reserves, banks are then motivated in theory to then go out and do other things like loan, like lend into the real economy or buy at least buy other risky securities in order to make up for having sold their earning assets to the central bank in, in receiving these lower earning or negative earning bank reserves. This is really where QE theoretically is supposed to, was always supposed to have the, the biggest impact. But again, the problem is the commercial banking system. If commercial banks don't have the balance sheet capacities or willingness to buy any other assets or to, to add other assets to the risky assets to the balance sheet, there's no portfolio effects whatsoever. In fact, that's what the studies have all shown. From the very beginning, if the banking system doesn't want to do what QE proposes they're going to do in response to it, then it's the whole thing. There's no trillions of dollars. There's nothing in the real economy. There's no effect whatsoever. And in fact, when you add all of these things up, really the only possible way that QE could work is through nothing more than sentiment. As the last thing on, on the Forbes list here, confidence in the economy grows. In fact, if you go back up on this, this website where uh, Forbes published this handy list of how QE is supposed to work, they actually quote some head of fixed income research at a major bank 
who gives the game away. What he said was, it's a powerful signal that the Fed wants to stimulate economic growth, and that is an influential force on capital markets and asset prices. Yeah, it's in your opinion, it's an influential force. In reality, this powerful signal isn't so powerful. That signaling, this guy said, that signaling effect so far has been the most influential component of quantitative easing. I would agree with him there, except that the, the uh, not very influential whatsoever, but here he gives the game away. It's not money printing. It's not money entering the real economy. It's not increased liquidity in the financial system. It's not interest rates declining. It's not portfolio effects. It's supposed to be about confidence. And in a world where you have real monetary problems, real financial problems, and real economic difficulties, what good is nothing more than confidence? But anyway, QE has been blamed for all sorts of ills from the very beginning, all sorts of inflationary ills from the very beginning. You heard it from the very first QE in Japan, didn't produce inflation. Everybody said, well, the Japanese did it wrong. And ever since then, it's been, oh, the Fed does QE. Now we're going to have a burst of inflation. They're going to kill the dollar. The dollar's going to go to zero. All this money printing. That was 2009. The dollar went the other way. Inflation never happened. In fact, we went through a prolonged period of disinflation, regardless of the level of bank reserves or QE in the United States. And nowhere was this shortfall or the, you know, really, it's the worst of all possible cases. It's QE is entirely irrelevant. Nowhere is that more obvious than in Japan. Between just let's just look at the most recent QQE, which is for my unofficial count, QQE 25 and 26. QE11, if you like, between March of 2020 and April 2022 at the maximum, the Bank of Japan created out of thin air 149 and a quarter trillion yen, which was an increase in the amount of bank reserves of 43.4%, an enormous increase in bank reserves on top of a level that was already enormous from all of those past QEs. Did that have any effect on the real economy? No. In fact, you look at Japanese GDP today, it is substantially less than it was in 2019, let alone say something like 2017 when all of this stuff really started to go wrong in Japan. So it hasn't led to a recovery. It hasn't led to consumer price inflation either. Before this year, before actually March, up until March of 2022, Japanese CPIs were more often deflationary than inflationary. Despite almost two years, massive increase in the, in the Bank of Japan's balance sheet. No effect in consumer. The consumer price index in Japan was 1.2% year over year in March. Suddenly in April, however, it was 2.4%. It doubled from March to April this year. And now as of October, it's 3.8%, which is the highest going back 40 years. Excluding fresh food prices, which is the, the measure that the Bank of Japan uses to evaluate quote-unquote price stability, back in March, uh, CPI excluding fresh food was 0.8% year over year. Then all of a sudden in April, it shot up to 2.1%, and now it's 3.5%. Even when you look at the CPI, less both food and energy, we had prices falling 
Uh, as of March, it was minus 0.7% year over year. But then suddenly in April, we got plus 0.8%. So a radical change in April of 2022. And now in, in October, it's 2.5%. So the Bank of Japan spent decades, multiple quantitative easings, probably 26, if you really want to be honest about it. Can't be quantitative, can't be. It took decades. And the, the only thing that had... Um, now, all of a sudden, consumer prices are resp are they responding to QE? What are they actually doing? And the, what's going on here, the timing of it, is tells us everything that we want to know. It was never QE. It was never the Bank of Japan. It's not bank reserves, which we knew all along. But here's the what happened in April of 2022. Well, two things simultaneously. First of all, on March 17th of 2022, the Japanese government decided to formally lift all of the remaining uh, pandemic quasi-emergency advisories and curbs across all of Japan. So April 2022 was the first, first month in which Japan was totally lifted out of the pandemic restrictions or advisories or whatever you want to call them. What also happened in March of 2022? Massive spike in food prices, oil, food, everything. Commodity prices went crazy as a response of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. At the same time, because of the, the parallel trigger in especially the U.S. dollar market, because Jap Japan needs dollars to buy much, most of its imported food and, and energy, you had the yen decline precipitously. So we had Japanese government lifting all restrictions, economic life coming back more than supply was able to su supply, at the same time, prices went nuclear, dollars became hard to come by. Now Japan is experiencing the same sort of supply shock that the rest of the world had a year before. In fact, they're experiencing it now for the first time in 40 years, not because of all that money printing, but because of the economic, economic conditions of the last couple of years. What changed that finally got this, this inflation, so-called, that the Bank of Japan has said that it's wanted ever since really the middle 1990s. What changed? It wasn't QE. It wasn't money printing. It wasn't pouring trillions of yen into the real economy. It was nothing more than the dollar shortage combined with a supply shock. If you look at Japan honestly, you'll see the lack of results and you'll see the same lack of results as we see all around the rest of the world. So inevitably, in response to all of this massive economic pain that the Japanese are now experiencing, at some point, the Bank of Japan is going to say, because they're always behind, they're going to stop QQE entirely, which they already really have, functionally. They're going to maybe even start raising rates, but by then it'll probably be too late because Japan already in a recession again. They'll be restarting QE at some point next year. In fact, Japan may already be in recession because their GDP unexpectedly declined last quarter. And from Japan, we can learn a great deal about everything else around the world, all these QEs in the US and Europe and everywhere that's ever been tried. It is at best irrelevant. And really it's nothing more than a reactionary program designed because they don't know what else to do in response to a deflationary, depressionary condition which is what markets are telling us all across these curves. 
that interest rates are going to go lower quickly, likely whenever we see a scenario where interest rates go lower quickly, there'll be more QEs. It's not money printing. It won't contribute to inflation because it can't. I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you for watching. Huge thank you to all of our Eurodollar University members who have hopefully enjoyed the deep dive series into all the flaws behind quantitative easing, as well as answering and filling in all of these gaps in the commercial banking system, why QE doesn't work, how the monetary system does work, exclusive videos at Eurodollar University for members, as well as a huge thank you to all our uh, Markets Insider Pro subscribers, deep dive analysis subscribers. Until next time, take care.